Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. This is a fun Sunday. I think I've gotten to preach this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, a few times um, in my time here at Sawyer and, and Converge. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I think it's special in a lot of ways. Hopefully we'll get to celebrate not only this morning, but also this evening as we uh, maybe carol, unless it's raining. Um, and, and also, in, you know, Cindy, but Cindy told me, Cindy said if it's raining, she's not going to bring the kids through it. If it's wet, that's a different story. So is this an announcement? I guess... We, you know what? Bring an umbrella. Yeah. You tell Cindy that. All right. I don't tell Cindy anything. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, yeah, you can bring your umbrella. Either way, be here tonight, uh, if not just for the, the food and the fellowship and the lighting of the tree. Uh, I think this season is fun uh, to, to kick off because it's full of traditions that bring joy and comfort. I don't know what some of your traditions are. Um, some of the, the traditions that are, are common or something that our family does, we will go to the tree farm and cut down a tree. That's kind of like something we look forward to and then drink hot cocoa. Uh, maybe you've got traditions or certain family gatherings. Uh, in different places. Maybe you go to the German Christmas market in Chicago. Uh, maybe it's lighting Advent wreaths. Maybe some of you, anyone have the Advent calendars with little chocolates? Yeah, no one? What? Dog yummies. <laughs> well, our kids have these little can- uh, candies. Like each day you poke a hole and you pull the flat back and you know, every day you get one chocolate. And, and oftentimes there would be more than one chocolate a day, t- which makes it sad you know, when you actually get to the end. But uh, that's, um, anyway, those are, those are fun traditions. Uh, maybe it's reading daily devotions. Um, but, but they prepare our hearts. They comfort our hearts to receive the good news of, of Jesus. Now, I like words. Some of you might know and others might not, so I'll say it. Advent is, uh, I think, a Latin word that actually means to, to arrive. Which is a, you know, I, I was laughing at myself as I'm driving in, like, to arrive. I'm arriving late. You know, let that be a word picture for you for Advent. Advent is to come or to arrive. It's usually associated with the beginning of something, the, the advent of dot, dot, dot. And in the Christian tradition, Advent uh, has to do with the arrival of God, in the flesh, in, in the, the, the birth of Jesus Christ. And it is this that we get to celebrate and anticipate annually around this time of year. That said, I think it's very fitting that those Advent traditions we have that are so comforting um, are that they are comforting because comfort is actually why the king came. And I think our text is going to reveal that to us this morning. And so one of the things I really want to do is connect for us um, the ideas of, of Advent and comfort. That's going to be one of the things I want us to associate together. Um, Jesus' arrival was meant to spark hope and bring comfort by offering all people peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, this morning, we, we've been going through the book of Matthew for, anyone know how many months? Does, Mike, do you know how many months? It's over 12, right? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to pause our track, we'll, uh, but you might be surprised. We'll still spend quite a bit of time uh, not digging into Matthew, but I think arguably Matthew's favorite prophet, Isaiah. You know, part of our, our main idea is the promised king. Follow the promised king into his kingdom. Well, 
who promised that he would come? Well, Isaiah makes many of those prophecies, some of those promises, or, or relays them at least. And so we're actually going to spend time in Isaiah's prophecies uh, that Matthew later writes down. And, and the first one we're going to start with is what, um, well, Keisha just read three of the verses. We'll, we'll take five of them, uh, the two prior as well. And, and these five verses are, are very familiar to some of us, maybe uh, foggy, sort of familiar to others. Um, but that's because every gospel author mentions it. And, and the gospel authors, they, they, they're not all in sync. Three of them are pretty in sync, but all four of them mention this prophecy and they connect it to John the Baptist. And John's ministry was to prepare people to prepare people for the advent or arrival of King Jesus. And he called them to prepare by, by preparing their hearts to receive them. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. But, but I want us to get another connection. So advent and comfort. But I also want us to, to get the connection between comfort and preparation. Uh, more specifically, we'll talk about repentance. Comfort and repentance go together. It's a comforting thing. And so hopefully that'll, that'll connect for us. Uh, the main idea that I, I'll say once or twice or in various ways is this. Would we, church, prepare to receive the promised king and the comfort that he brings? Prepare to receive the promised king and the comfort that he brings. <clears throat> so um, at this time, uh, is there a reader, Mike? Were you able to recruit a, a reader in Sunday school? Rebecca Conway, would you come up and read the first five verses of Isaiah? And as she makes her way on up, would, would you stand with me? We do this here um, as a, a gesture of honoring God uh, for his word. Okay, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Father, we need your help. Would you, would you dig out ears? that we might hear what you have to say to us? Uh, would you prepare our hearts to receive the, the seed that is your word? Would you, would you give us a, a desire to turn to you? God, we, we invite and, and implore, ask that your Holy Spirit would, would help us um, as we respond to your word this morning, your, your mighty word that endures forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to walk our way through this text in a little bit of a, a scattered, um, I guess, order. Uh, so instead of starting with verses 1 and 2, I want to start with that part of the passage that's more familiar to us, a voice crying in the wilderness, verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. So, and then we'll work backwards to verses 1 and 2. 
So let me read verse 3 again. Um, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So in verse 3, we meet the voice of someone crying to God's people. And, and, and this is not the kind of crying that, you know, we, we're, we're used to doing when we're sad or seeing when we're sad. It's, it's actually more like crying out, uh, proclaiming something, declaring something. This is the language we might use of a, a messenger who is giving, uh, bringing a royal decree. Or, or maybe if you're in a large crowd and you're trying to get everyone's attention, you're going to cry out. Um, so, so maybe, maybe that's a helpful image, but, but this, this is the idea. There is an announcement to be made. And the announcement is this, that, that the people's King, the Lord God, uh, he, he is coming. He, he is coming. And so preparations should be made. And the preparations that, um, Isaiah imagines here involve clearing away, making a path for a king on his journey so that we, we can make sure he doesn't, you know, get held up at any point along the way. Verse four continues, every valley shall be lifted up. Imagine that like a valley lifted up a mountain and hill made low and, and the uneven ground shall become level and the, and the rough places will become as a plain. I mean, imagine the scale of these preparations. This is no, no small um, operation here. Valleys lifted, mountains leveled, roads made smooth. If the king is coming to town, though, you want to make sure that the potholes are filled in, that the growth is cut back, right? There's a, a dignitary coming, and, and so you want to be ready so that he gets, he gets to the town, Right? And so maybe a, an image of a police escort for a, a president or a high-ranking official is, an, a, a, is a helpful image. Right? The, the police escort is going to go in front and clear the way of traffic, clear the, uh, make sure that the best routes are found. Nothing is going to, to hinder this, this official, this dignitary, from getting where they need to be. So, so what is this image getting across? The, the desire is that all hindrances would be removed to ensure that the king arrives. And that when he does, we get to see him and receive him. Get rid of all obstacles, things that hinder us. But preparing roads is just an image. However well-intentioned, preparing a road would not be much help in preparing for the kind of king Isaiah foresees. Because when the Lord did come, he didn't come on, on a chariot or, or in a carriage. I'm not sure what they did expect, maybe a military hero or a persuasive politician, but, but a baby born among animals was certainly not in the cards. No one was preparing roads to Bethlehem. And however unexpected it may have been, um, <clears throat> however unexpected it may have been, God did in fact arrive on the scene in this way as a baby. That is how he was to reveal his glory that all flesh would see together. Uh, God himself taking on human form in the lowliest of, con- of conditions. And, and in the Christian faith, we, we call this the incarnation. And this is one of those words again, that, that's kind of fun. Incarnation. Carne is, is just flesh, humanness. So this is God in flesh, humanness. And, and, and this is, the, the incarnation is one of the great wonders of Christianity, um, that, that God would choose to reveal his glory in such a strange way. 
One of the songs that um, the body and Sawyer sang was Behold Our God. And it's a crazy song to sing when you're looking at a, a, a cross and, and a manger. This is how our God chose to reveal his glory. It is one of the, the mysteries of Christianity. I mean, because gods are supposed to demonstrate their power in grandiose ways only. We know that God does that. But, but to exercise uh, or to give up the exercise of their power so that they could dwell among their powerless people, that is incredible. Incredible. C.S. Lewis calls it like the grand miracle in, in, in all of history, the, the incarnation. But for all of its edginess and... Um, kind of scandalousness. It is a glorious truth. God becoming a a person, a man in the person of Jesus is actually a demonstration of his wisdom. How's that wise? How's it wise to come as a, as a baby, as a, as a um, servant? Well, because only an infinite God is able to satisfy and forgive the infinite debt of human sinfulness. Our sin is infinite because we have, we have sinned against a holy, perfect God. Our, our sin requires a, a, a sacrifice greater than any animal can offer, right? We need the perfect God. He alone can satisfy our debt. And yet only a human can, can actually serve as a fitting sacrifice for the sins of humans, And so you need the God-man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 17 says it this way. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That is to substitute himself in their place. The gospel became possible when God took on flesh. And it is this that we get to celebrate in Advent. But if the king's arrival was different than expected, the preparations for his arrival are different than expected as well. So um, changing the conditions of a road to receive royalty, if you work in construction, I'm sorry, um, it's achievable, right? I'm not saying it's easy, but constructing a road project is is achievable um, and, and relatively easy. But the preparations that need to happen in order to receive a divine king who came as a a child, who lived a a meager life, took the form of a servant, suffered, died. What are those? What kind of preparations are needed to receive him? Well, the obstacles that keep us from receiving this kind of king are, are found in our own hearts. They're found in our own hearts. And if the obstacles are in our hearts, then the preparations need to be made in our heart. And I think we're on the right track here because John the Baptist understood it this way too in the New Testament. And John the Baptist is identified as the voice crying in the wilderness. So he he did not come calling for a, a project of developing the Judean countryside, but he cried out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he interpreted and understood his mission that, that Isaiah foresaw here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because the king is on the scene. Jesus is there. So for John, this heart preparation meant repentance. And, and this is a, I, I, I love to talk about repentance, but it, it's always a little bit tricky 
You know, uh, I, I don't want us to think that repentance is merely just some work that we can do to achieve a, a, a greater status with God. Um, see, repentance is something, yes, that, that we do, we participate in it, but it's actually something God gives to us as well. And so I, what I don't want you to hear is repentance is merely trying harder. Repentance is not duty. It's delight. It's a change in desires. Repentance is, is responding to grace, not earning grace. But it does change our living and our, our lives. So let's, let's just talk about it a little bit. I, I just want to make sure we don't understand that this is like we're working to get our salvation. That's, that's not what repentance is. So what is repentance? It is uh, to turn one's life, to, to turn. Uh, it could be said to be changing one's mind or desires. Repentance is learning to see ourselves and our, our neediness in the same way that God sees us and our neediness, and then actually turning to him. Um, repentance involves wanting the things that God wants and, and mourning about the things that God mourns about. It, it, repentance is a, a complete reorientation of our loves. And, and, and the reorientation of those loves actually causes us to reorient our living, our lives. We make different decisions because we love different things. This is something that God does in us and invites us to participate in. So think about this for a moment. The arrival of God into human history is so stunning, the way he chose to do it, that in order to receive that news, in order to receive that king, we need a heart that is regularly and radically being prepared by repentance. Sometimes we think of repentance as like kind of the, the doomy, gloomy, hard work, right? We, it, it, it's dying. It's talked about as like dying to ourselves. But I hope that we, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I hope we can connect repentance with comfort. It's a good thing. <clears throat> why, so why do we need to repent? Well, what kind of person comes to a, a baby for saving? Or, or more accurately said, who comes to a, a bleeding man on a cross for salvation? It, it is not the people who think of themselves as primarily good. They won't come because they don't need them. It's not for the people who are at least better than at least some other people. It, it's not for those of us who think we can manage our life on our own. It's for Desperate people. Here's a, a, a quote from a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. His name's Robert Murray McShane. And, and we'll have to work through this because uh, it's old language, but it's really uh, pretty, pretty um, profound. So here it is. Do we have it projected? Good. Thanks, Aiden. Clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of dependence on another's righteousness. Let's repeat that. Okay, when I understand how sinful and, and, and wicked my sin is, that is the only time I will turn to someone else for their righteousness. So, so I have to see my sin the way God sees it. I have to understand it, it's an obstacle for me to be with him and to receive him. Because when I recognize sin in that way, then I'm going to turn to Jesus. And I'm going to say, I need your righteousness. Okay, but that's only first half of the, the quote. Second half of the quote's good too. Therefore, clear conviction of sin is also the only true origin of the Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. Okay? 
clear conviction of sin and, and repenting of it is the only true origin of your peace and cheerfulness, church. If we do not recognize how, how wicked our sin is, we will not turn from it. And therefore, we will not have peace. So, so the conviction of sin is a, is a beautiful thing. And repentance is a, a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God. It is the, the people who turn to a bleeding Savior on a cross. It is the desperate people who are unable to fix themselves. It is those who are willing to give up everything, even uh, the, the connection to their own sin, if it means they might be saved by the righteousness of another. Repentance prepares our hearts to receive God's gracious forgiveness because in repentance, we agree that we need God's forgiveness. We, we agree with God that our sin is a problem beyond our ability to fix. Do we see our sin like that? Or do we maybe dismiss our sin as not that big of a deal? Do, do we see our sin as a roadblock or obstacle that hinders our ability to receive King Jesus? Make straight a highway in the desert for our Lord. There may be all kinds of reasons we downplay our sin, but, but the thing that keeps us from receiving Jesus is our reluctance to, to see it rightly and to turn from it, our sin. So maybe a message on repentance was not what you were expecting this morning. Maybe it seems like a strange place to start the Advent season of celebration and joy, but I want you to see the connection between repentance and comfort. Okay, they, they, they go together. Um, because if we, if we don't, rec- we, we will not recognize the fullness of God's glory in Jesus if we don't recognize our sin for what it is. So church, what obstacles might be in your way keeping you from receiving Jesus and the grace he offers. And, and, and where do those obstacles come from in your heart? And, and, and we'll, we'll talk more about that at the end. But, but what, are the, what are the things that keep you from receiving Jesus? And, and where does that come from in your heart? Okay, so part one. Okay, part two or the prequel, we're going to back up to, to verses one and two. Because I think it's important that we know the context. If the king is coming, is he coming and like angry? Is it kind of like, you know, is it like the health inspector is coming and we got to fix up the shop so that we don't get shut down? Is it like frantic scariness? Or why, why is the king coming? What's the context? So let's read verses one and two. God says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But in that first verse, what do you hear? It's unmistakable. It's comfort. It's comfort. God wants to bring his people comfort. So, so the coming of the king in verses three through five is actually revealed to be a mission. The king is on a mission to bring comfort to his people. And, and so being, uh, being comforted is a sweet thing for anyone, but, but it's even sweeter when we consider who Isaiah uh, is writing to. Uh, his audience, uh, there's some discussion around who that may be. It might've been Judea, the people of Judah before exile. It could have been the people of Judah in exile 
you know, people smarter than me disagree on these things, but, but either way, it is safe to say that Isaiah's audience were the people of Judah who had either already lost hope or were in the process of losing hope. Um, they were people who had been, or told they soon would be plucked from their homeland out of their homes, out of their families, brought into enslavement and would experience the loss of land, family, culture. These were a desperate people facing calamity and tragedy beyond what many of us can fathom. And I think it's fair to say at this point and important to say that Judah's hardships, uh, at least, were were said to have come upon them uh, because of their own reluctance to repent. Uh, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, this, this first half of this big book of Isaiah, is, is full of a lot of warnings. Warnings that judgment would, would come as a, as a result of unrepentant sin. And, and so Judah's hardship, it could be said, was largely brought upon themselves. Um, sin has tragic consequences. But while that was true for Judah, it's often also the case that hardship and loss can come upon us, not as a consequence of our sin. So the the man Job in the Old Testament, God calls a righteous man. And yet we know that Job lost everything, right? So I'm not saying that there are different kinds of causes of of loss, but regardless of the causes, I, I, I want us to be able to relate to the experience of loss because then we're going to hear the word comfort a little differently. So, so maybe many of us can't experience, you know, being kicked, like dragged out of our homes, or maybe we can't relate to being enslaved, but we probably can relate to the experience of significant loss in other ways. Loss of, of health, loss of relationships, loved ones. Maybe we've lost a job at some point in our life and, and the sense of security that it brought. And if that's true for you, you might also be able to imagine the kind of grief that, that can turn into despair, hopelessness, or a kind of despair that makes life feel dull. It is people such as this that these powerful words come in verse 1. It is comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, in their hopelessness, and, and perhaps if we've been there too, we, we might need some convincing, right? If you've been like in the pits of despair, you might be cynical and unwilling to be comforted. I don't know if you can relate to that. Like, I don't want your comfort. And so maybe they'll need some convincing. And I think Isaiah's, that's exactly what he plans to do for the rest of the book. From, from chapter 40 onward, there's a, a major pivot away from warnings of judgment to comfort and how that comfort's going to come to them. And, and so, um, I'm losing my spot. So in verse one, <clears throat> I want us to notice at this major pivot point that God gives the command to comfort and it's not insignificant that it's in the, this double repetition. This is just like a Hebrew way of arranging words where, where we might bold, cap, underline, and italicize something to make sure that people know it. Like when we're writing an email, please don't miss this. This is the point, the, the big thing you need to hear. That's the Hebrew way of doing that. So when he says, comfort, comfort my people, he will not have his people miss that comfort is what he's all about right now. He, he will not allow his people to misunderstand him. Yes, he does bring judgment, 
but he will not allow his people to think that his heart towards them is calloused or cold or far off. God, God is for his people. His affections are still for them. Even after the sin that they continued in, imagine that. I mean, one of the cool images that Isaiah will use, I think at least twice in the, in this, this second half of the book is that of a mother you know, we, we often, you know, Jesus called God the father, but, but God off in, in Isaiah, at least he, he can, he compares himself to a mother with her child. What a cool image for someone who wants to communicate comfort. So I, I have three boys and I love them a lot. And I, I think they love me a lot, but when they really want a good cuddle, I, I am at best the second choice. It's just true. They, they know where to go for comfort. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I, I try, oh, come here. You know, I, I, you know, they, they, they scrape their knee, like, come here. If, if mom's around, it's, it's her first. And, and why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one of the ways Isaiah mentions it is like a, a nursing mother. She can't forget her child while she's nursing, right? Like uh, she, she's comforting and caring for her child. She, she cannot forget. She, she cannot help but love and have compassion on her child. Her capacity for patience is, it, it, it defies reason. And yet even in those times where she does grow impatient, God, God does not. God says, mothers may forget about their nursing children, but not I. He says, yeah, mothers are comforting, but, but even they fail to comfort sometimes. I, I will not. Like he, he is like, yeah, it's just a, a really cool image. Um, that God gives us in that. <clears throat> so with great tenderness and persuasion, God wants to comfort his children. He wants to comfort you, church, those who are in the pits of despair. And this is how he wants to comfort. He, he, he gives three things. He says, one, that, um, well, I'll just read the whole verse again. Comfort my people, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. So I want to make a few observations here because there's some interesting things. Um, first, the major presenting problem here uh, is not random hardships. I mean, when you, when you read verses one and two, the problem that, that God wants to, to come to his people to, to comfort them for is their iniquity and their sin. That's the problem. Now, now surely the Lord comforts those who are suffering, not because of their sin, like Job, but here the Lord intends to bring comfort to a people whose problem is sin, whose hardships are a result of sin. Secondly, I think the phrase receiving double is kind of cool, but interesting. Like, what does that mean? Like, is, is Isaiah saying that the people have like been disciplined double for what their sins deserve? That's kind of how I like thought maybe it meant, but it didn't make sense. So I did a little digging. What does this phrase receiving double mean? And I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I did some reading from some commentators, people, people smarter than me. And um, they said, it's more like two halves of something right? Doubled over on themselves. Receiving from, from the Lord double for their sins is, is like receiving the perfect match for what they needed. Does that sort of make sense? That, that's kind of what the phrase is trying to get at. Doubled over, perfect match for what the people's sins required. Um, 
So I think this understanding of the verse actually fits in well with, with the previous phrase that her iniquity is pardoned. The, the payment or pardon that God provides for his people is the perfect match required for what their sin demanded. That's a, that's a, that's a great comfort to us. God, God didn't like pay most of it. He paid the perfect amount that, that was required to pay for our sins and comfort us with peace. Thirdly, when it comes to sin and iniquity being dealt with, notice that pardon and receiving double from, are, are both things carried out by God. God gives double. God gives pardon. Uh, and, and God gives forgiveness. Nowhere in these two verses is it indicated that God will comfort those who help themselves and, and, and earn it. It's just not, it's absent. It is only out of God's desire to comfort his people that he chooses to pardon their sin by providing the exact price needed to do so. And we, we have the privilege on the other side of the cross of knowing that price to be the, the blood of Jesus, the God man who alone could supply payment sufficient to cover our debt. So why would God do this? Why would God do this? It is because it's just who he is. I mean, we we need to hear that every Sunday because we are so forgetful. I'm so forgetful. It is who he is. It is what he delights to do. Lamentations is written by the prophet Jeremiah also to a people who are in the pits of despair. And right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, he, Jeremiah acknowledges this. Yes, God did bring our affliction. He brings affliction, but he doesn't do it from his heart. He doesn't like have this sick joy in bringing affliction. His desire, what God wants is to have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. We, you have a king who enjoys comforting his people. He, he wants to forgive sin. It's something he, like, he he wants to do it. He's not reluctant to forgive sin. This is who God is. He, he wants to comfort his people. So let's now try to take verses three through five and verses one and two and, and, and kind of connect them a little bit. Verses three through five made it clear that we should prepare for God's coming. Okay. Secondly, Um, Verses one and two show us that God is coming in order to comfort his people. Therefore, when we prepare to receive him in our repentance, we're actually preparing to receive his comfort as well. Repentance prepares us to receive God's comfort. Okay. Because God is comforting, we don't have to fear partaking in repentance. He's not out to get us and we don't have to like be scared of embarrassment. Repentance is the way to prepare to receive God's comfort. That is a beautiful thing. And, and, and repentance uh, prepares us to receive that comfort by faith. Um, so that's, that's our first five verses. And I, I kind of want to fly through or breeze over, but I don't want to forget the rest of the chapter, chapter 40, verses six through 31. So if you've got a Bible, you can like keep it open because I'm not going to project the, I'm just going to summarize what the sections are, but you can read them or take some notes later. But I think Isaiah, uh, one of the things he accomplishes in the rest of this chapter is he, he cautions us from it, to not turn to false comforts. So he, he identifies some lesser comforts, fake comforts that we are tempted to turn to. 
instead of relying on him. So verses six through eight will, is the first paragraph. And um, here we meet another voice that cries out. And, and this is a summary of, of the, the announcement. It's this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then later it says, surely the people are grass. They will fade, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. So what's the warning? Be careful not to look for comfort or, or, or a sense of just feeling okay by craving the approval of another person, of other people. They'll, they'll fade. We'll fade. Does anyone else struggle here looking for approval from others? I got a little bit more interaction here than at Sawyer. I appreciate that, the honesty. Um, but instead, we are to look to the unchanging word of God. His opinions don't change. His commands don't change. His character doesn't change. Significantly, his promises don't change. He still wants to comfort his people by providing pardon. His word reveals our deepest needs, and his word alone reveals the source of comfort found in Jesus Christ. And, and so, Look, look to the word of God and, and what God says and where God says comfort is found rather than people. Next, verses 9, 10, and 11, another voice declares that God in his mightiness and tenderness, like, like a shepherd leader, God is the only leader who is actually able to comfort his people. Uh, later, a couple of verses later, Isaiah says, um, or cautions us against relying on nations, governments, leaders. So the warning, what is it? Um, be careful not to seek comfort in nations or human institutions. Um, let me, the, the language here is just astounding. It's, he says, behold, compared to God, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Uh, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, a, a forested land, uh, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. Listen to this. All the nations are as nothing before God. He goes further. They are accounted by God as less than nothing and emptiness. I think Isaiah is like struggling to find words strong enough to, to caution us against depending on other like governments, nations, power. God, God alone has power sufficient to comfort. And, and so don't hear me saying that like we shouldn't care about politics. It, it is valuable to have carefully formed political opinions but let us be careful to not look for comfort in certain political leaders or political outcomes when only God can provide the comfort we're looking for. I mean, the nations are less than nothing. They're a drop in the bucket, but the Lord, the Lord is mighty. And, and, and most of the chapter is actually about God's tenderness and sovereignty. So trust in him. Again, I think... I don't want to miss this either. Verse 18 through 23, Isaiah um, sets God against idols um, and, and how idols, they're, they're just silly, right? People make them with their own hands and then expect them to do something for the people. 
set against God though, right? They, they're, they're nothing. What, what are idols if not false sources of comfort? What, what are idols if not uh, a, a source of kind of giving us relief from feeling guilty, just numbing our, our minds a little bit? Now, now we may view, view ourselves today as too refined for like the statuesque idols uh, of Isaiah, but, but I think we, we exhibit similar folly when we look for comfort or a sense of peace from, I don't know, say like distracting technologies, you know, YouTube, <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe it's video games. Maybe it's, maybe it's looking for a, a changed circumstance. That'll make me comfortable for good, right? That'll make me better. Maybe it's physical fitness or appearing beautiful. Maybe it's um, healthiness. That will make me more comfortable. And the list can go on and on and on. But, but they, don't, they don't give the fullness of comfort and peace that God intends to give his people. So, but, but why do we look to them? Why do we look to these false sources of comfort? You know, Kel and I were talking about sirens uh, with a capital S this week. Uh, and so I'm not talking about the noon bells that go off in some of the towns around here. Um, those sirens, the noon bells are associated kind of, well, at noon, it's just, hey, it's noon. But, but it's supposed to be like a warning. That's what sirens are about. And, and, and the, the sense of warning comes from uh, Homer's Odyssey. And that's what Kel and I were talking about, my wife, um, so in Homer, Homer's like a author from pre, pre-Jesus times. And he wrote this story about a, a man named Odysseus and he was traveling on a ship with all of his shipmates and they sailed past this island. And, and as they sailed past, they heard these beautiful voices, alluring songs, offering promises that were like too good to be true. And, and, um, and like Odysseus, he, he's like, tie me to the mast of the ship because I I don't want to go after those, those sirens. But he only did that because um, he realized these, these alluring voices, these sirens, were, were not the, 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 the beautiful women that the, the men supposed they were to be. They were monsters. And, and when the men got close enough, the monsters devoured them. It was, it was fake. <laughs> it, was, it was a temptation. And so Odysseus is like, tie me to the mast. I'm not, I'm not going. But, but the promises were hollow um, <clears throat> so I think part of the appeal of these temptations, these false comforts, these modern day idols, I think is in their ease and, and their immediacy, right? So what do I mean by that? Um, the comfort they offer, like it's not full, but man, it, it's easy to get. And it's a, it's a quick, it's, it's like the dopamine hit quick. But receiving comfort from God in contrast is often very costly. It's difficult uh, it's sometimes life. I mean, it is a lifelong process. It, the comfort sometimes feels slow in coming. <clears throat> Receiving the sweet comfort of peace with God through the forgiveness of sin requires that difficult daily work of preparing our hearts to receive the grace and comfort he wants to give us. And that, that involves well, a lot of things. Um, so I, I guess I just want to end. I want to conclude with... Um, thinking about a couple of ways we might prepare our hearts this season to receive him. What, what does that look like? I think Isaiah chapter 40 offers us a few, few ways to prepare. So let's just consider a couple. Number one, I think Isaiah wants us, would have us value or prize God's enduring word. God himself does not change 
His character has not changed, nor will it, nor does he change his mind. So what he has said in his word all the way back in Isaiah 600 BC, it it is still true. It is for us. It stands forever. So how do, how do, how do I prize God's word? How do I use it and rely on it to prepare to receive comfort? Well, I think one of the things we do is we store it up in our hearts. How do we store God's words up in our hearts? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways. Uh, Memorization is one thing that the saints have been um, practicing for millennia. So, so prize God's word by storing up his words in your heart. Maybe, maybe it's his promises. Maybe it's, it's attrib- his attributes, uh, like uh, Exodus 34. Maybe, maybe uh, prizing God's word looks like praying the Psalms this season. You know, the Psalms are, are, are excellent for, for working through and almost making them our own prayers. Maybe you do that this Advent. You know, there's this band called The Corner Room. Uh, it's just one among many, but Kel and I love them. They just, they put psalms to music. And, and what happens is when it's put to music, I, I remember them. I think about them. I know them. And, and, and they just, music lingers. You know, you'll probably forget a lot of what I said, but you'll remember the songs and be humming them this week. And, and so maybe, maybe it's listening to the psalms this Advent. Oh, and um, yeah, I'll stop there. Secondly, um, maybe we can prepare this Advent by beholding God often. Beholding God often. This might happen as you read the word, but how else do we behold God in a distracted age? And, and so the phrase that came to me, even last night as I'm preparing, is it's like a purposeful pause. Like we're so busy. As soon as I finish one thing, like I'll turn on a podcast. And once the podcast is over, you know, then I'll like pick up the newspaper. And once I finish the newspaper article, like I got to go to work, you know? And so like we, we'll, we'll do these things and it's hard to behold God when we're just on the go. And so maybe this Advent season, it looks like a purposeful pause, a planned pause to, to, to stop, to, to consider or reflect on God's activity. Maybe it looks like going on a walk, but, but beholding God involves an intentional um, looking to him. So number three, preparation looks like seeing and fleeing sirens. Uh, there is in all of our hearts, I think, a tendency to turn good things into God things. We, we look to the creation to comfort us in ways that only the creator can. Uh, John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories, always creating idols. So try to identify this Advent season, those things that when you are stressed out or distressed, that you, you like just kind of impulsively gravitate towards. What do, you, what do you go to to kind of numb yourself, feel, you know, feel less stress or less pain? Try to identify those things that you go to and then ask yourself, why am I going to those things? Because, you know, the, you know YouTube shorts, that might be like, the, the presenting hindrance, like I, when, I, when I could purposefully care for my wife or purposefully turn to the Lord, I just, you know, we turn on videos for an hour. That's a hindrance, but, but it's also coming from somewhere. So where is it coming from? Why am I going to those things? Why do I need this constant influx of information, right? Just do that hard work of like discerning our heart. You know, wh- where is that? What's the deeper heart obstacle? And then instead flee to God. Finally, number four, um, repentance. Uh, 
Um, not only should we turn uh, away from temptation and false comforts, we should run to God for comfort. Um, receiving comfort uh, of pardon sin starts with repenting of sin. And that's a really hard saying because repentance is a, a difficult and, and bitter practice. We've alluded to that. Um, there's a really great quote, and I think it's easy to remember. I don't have it projected, but it's from a Puritan named Thomas Watson. And he says this, until sin becomes bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is why we, we partake in, 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 in repentance because we have recognized our, that, that sin really is bad for us. It's, 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 in, it's in conflict with the good that God desires to give us. Until we recognize sin is bitter, we will not flee to Christ and we will not recognize his sweetness. And so um, embrace the, the joy and the comfort that comes from repentance. Um, this Christmas season, uh, we get to celebrate God's entrance into human history in Jesus. And, and because he's arrived in human form, uh, he, he was able to pardon our sins by forgiving, um, by dying on the cross in our place. And, and there is no greater comfort than that. Um, so may it be the, this December that, that you and I would um, make this preparation a daily thing. Would we daily prepare to receive our King and the comfort he brings by turning to him in faith and repentance. Though the preparation of repentance is hard, though it is bitter, often the comfort that God gives is exceedingly sweet. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to see and be willing to see those things in our, our life, those obstacles that are keeping us from you. We're, we need your help to see. May it be that we invite others to help us see those things, but, but would you give us eyes to see the obstacles that keep us from receiving you? Give us the gift of repentance. Help us to, to cast off sins, to cast off hindrances, and run to our Savior. Give us humble hearts that we might um, humble ourselves and exalt you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.